ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. The question may sound familiar. Is intelligent design credible? But this conversation is different. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson, and in today's rather unique podcast conversation, Dr. Michael Behe speaks for intelligent design as one of the original thought leaders in today's ID movement, but he's also a lifelong Roman Catholic, which is more than relevant here today because he's speaking with Dr. Matthew Ramage, professor of theology at Benedictine College and author of a recent book exploring evolution in light of the Bible and the teachings of Pope Benedict XVI. They're hosted by Pat Flynn on his Philosophy for the People podcast, and the question is whether ID is credible not only in the light of science, but also philosophy and theology. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. We have an exciting dialogue today, and I have two returning guests who've been on separately, but now they are together. We have Dr. Matthew Ramage and Dr. Michael Behe, and we're going to talk about the theory of intelligent design today, and uh, I'll, I'll do a little stage setting uh, first. Dr. Ramage has been on my show maybe two or three times now. I, f- I forget how many, but we've always had great discussions on on different topics. You're, you're a great generalist, Dr. Ramage. You have a lot to say on a lot of different things, so it's good to have you back, and you have a new book out, which we'll mention here soon. But uh, backstage, by the way, all the action of the podcast always happens backstage. You guys missed the real good stuff. Uh, we had a kind of spirited, but I thought very fruitful back and forth on on ID. This was maybe a couple of years ago, and uh, it was good. It was it was productive, and it, it gave me a lot to think about, and uh, I'm still thinking about it. And then Mike has been on many times, and he's been in dialogues with others, and always, always a joy to have Mike on to defend his views and his theories. And I actually reached back out to Mike um, because I wanted to I actually wanted to press Mike with uh, what I called like the most sophisticated objections to ID uh, to Mike's theory. And I had in mind uh, people like Jack Smart, uh, you know, some real good philosophical atheists. And I wanted to highlight them because they're the way they come at ID is very different than what you hear on the popular level. So you look at Jack Smart. He takes Mike's. Mike's challenges very seriously, actually speaks quite highly of Mike's work and then just tries to give what he thinks is his his best rebuttal. And I wanted to highlight that because to me, it's always important to see what I think the the brightest on the other side are saying. And if they're taking it seriously, then then maybe more other people should take it seriously, too. So anyways, long story short, Jim, who's not here with us, said, actually, you should just get Mike and Matt together to talk because because Matt's got a lot of thoughts on this and he's got a new book on evolution. And so here we are. We don't have a formal plan, but I'm sure a lot of fruit will come out of this discussion. And uh, anyways, before we we dive in, I just want to give you each an opportunity just to introduce yourselves. You've been on the show before, but it's it's been a little bit. So, um, Matt, why don't you go first? Just give us um, maybe, you know, uh, your brief background um, and and. I guess uh, as it's relevant to the to 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 the conversation today, and then uh, then Mike will go, and then we'll 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 start having some fun. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I, I like to use the word generalist. Yeah, I, I, I teach a lot of subjects. Biblical theology tends to be my specialization. Most of my research focuses on Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, which is a great area to focus on because he covers every topic. And uh, <laughs> this is a topic, uh, not intelligent design specifically, but just creation and evolution that has interested me since my biology days as an undergraduate and, and things like that, where I, 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 you think there's no answer. And then you read Pope Benedict and he kind of has a pretty compelling approach. So I wanted to write a book that for posterity's sake laid that out for people. So I went from 
his unpublished German lecture notes from the 50s through his writings as Cardinal Ratzinger to Pope and even a few comments upon retiring on Genesis and upon all the issues like original sin, death, etc. And I had just one tenth of the book was on the stuff that's more relevant for today. But I think it's a cool, important, crucial topic. So that, I guess that's how it's relevant to us here. And uh, like I mentioned backstage, I think talking to, to you, Pat, was actually really valuable a couple years back because you realize you, you can lump people all together. And I ended up adding a little footnote um, in chapter three that said, not all ID thinkers are alike. For example, Michael Behe accepts more or less the standard narrative of evolutionary theory. And uh, I'll kind of leave it at that and just make, I guess, the comment that I think it may emerge through this discussion that the ID Mike proposes is different from the pop version I often encounter by people who use it to dismiss evolution carte blanche. Yeah, really good. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Mike, if you want to both reintroduce yourself and then maybe expand or interact on some of those comments from Matt, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, well, first thing that listeners should know is that I am not a generalist. I, I'm a biochemist. I'm, I'm just a workaday scientist. And I'm not a philosopher, theologian. Uh, you know, so I, I specialize. I'm a lifelong Catholic. I went to Catholic grade school and high school and uh, and so on. And I was taught about evolution in grammar school that, hey, God made the laws of the universe. And if he wanted to make life by secondary causes, who are we to tell him otherwise? Sounded fine to me. Uh, what, you know, who am I to tell God what he had, he could or could not do? But it turns out that biochemistry, which I eventually went on to graduate school to study, and I'm a professor of biochemistry now for 40 years or so, uh, studies the molecular basis of life, which was something that was utterly unknown to Darwin in 1859. Uh, nobody knew whether molecules were real. Uh, science was primitive compared to what it is today. The cell was thought to be a little piece of jelly, protoplasm, nothing, not a big deal. A uh, number of people thought it might just pop up spontaneously from sea mud. And so, of course, the situation has changed drastically. So in my studies as a biochemist, I kind of accidentally got interested in the topic of evolution and saw that, in fact, it was a Potemkin village, that people nodded to each other and said, yeah, we know how it happened. We, you know, Darwin explained it all, even though Darwin had no knowledge of DNA or protein machinery or any of the things that modern science has discovered. And so um, long story short, I, I got so interested uh, that I thought I had something to say that nobody else did. So in 1996, I wrote a book <clears throat> called Darwin's Black Box, which uh, said that uh, Darwinism was inadequate to explain what science has discovered, especially at the molecular and cellular basis of life. And that, in fact, a much more compelling explanation that is that it was purposefully, intelligently designed. And since then, I've added two more books pretty much on similar subjects called One's the Edge of Evolution in 2007. And two years ago, two, three years ago now, 2019, another book called Darwin Defolves, 
which the theme of which is that Darwinian processes work, random mutation and natural selection works to help uh, a species adapt to an environment, but overwhelmingly it's by breaking stuff that was already there, breaking old genes, and in some circumstances that actually helps a species survive. Uh, and uh, uh, one concern I have is, is what Matt mentioned. He says not all idea proponents are like alike and not all uh, it's not like what you hear on the popular level. And that's been a frustration of mine for a long time, especially when I engage with academics and in particular Thomists who seem not to have actually read the books that have been written and take their uh, vision of what ID is from say a New York Times article or or some scientific society pronouncements. Um, and, uh, and it's in my view is that ID is wonderfully compatible with Thomistic philosophy. And it has astonished me over the years that some of the uh, Thomas I, I have heard of are uh, have such uh, negative things to say about intelligent design. Yeah, really good. I agree with that. So I consider myself broadly a Thomas, and I, I've been consistently disappointed by the lack of substantive engagement of Thomas who dismiss ID. But I'd also want to give credit. There's many other Thomas prominent ones like Robert Coons who are very friendly uh, yes. to ID. Um, so I think they d deserve a little nod there. Matt, do you want to interact with that at all, respond to that, or um, anything else you want to add? Sure. Mm -hmm. I like to describe myself as a, a Thomist of the less strict observance because... <laughs> I'm also, you might call me a Ratzingerian, a, a personalist. Mm -hmm. uh, take a more relational ontology that doesn't deny Thomism, but um, you're going to have disagreements there as well. I find that interesting that uh, sometimes Ratzinger and the resource Mont school is actually frowned upon these days, which is disappointing mm -hmm. as well. But that's, a, that's another side story there. Um, and so, like, basically, my thought on ID is, it, when I first saw Darwin's Black Box, was that the late 90s? Uh, and I never read the whole book, but I, I was like, this, I'm on board. This is awesome. So I, it, it, when I was in college at a secular university, it gave me something. As time went on, I guess I read more Aquinas, I, I diverged. But I think of ID this way, is anybody who's with with us is you know good deal like chesterton says uh the church is this big playground with the high walls of the dogmas and you can debate internal principles so um my experience mike again i think this is not your view but i know a lot of catholics i've met over the last at least 13 plus years um of undergrad teaching where they won't read your book either and they'll take a New York Times characterization, characterization, and they'll think that that means the entire process of evolution didn't happen. And their motivation for that is actually biblical literalism combined with a sort of Cartesian quest for perfect certitude. So they think they have a scientific proof. And by the way, I think you are doing scientific work here. It's in principle falsifiable, as you say. Um, so I, I just wanna hear from the horse's mouth if. You know, is that a, is that a correct understanding, uh, or do you, does that not correct what I'm saying there? Is what so like, is what correct? <laughs> is is my understanding of, of that correct? So I guess the 
another way to put it is what is your sort of two minute narrative of life's history? I think understanding that might help us to see where we may agree or not agree. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, okay, great. Uh, and <clears throat> brief, um, I have generally accept the timing and occurrence of everything that happened in life that is the standard story. But let me explain for the audience that that's a sideshow from my point of view. Uh, when people hear the word, uh, or when people think of Darwin's theory of evolution, they don't realize that it it is a composite of multiple ideas. It's not just one theory. And the three main ideas that are important to understand are number one, the idea of common descent. That is creatures that are alive today are descended by birth and death from creatures that existed in the misty past. And my view of that is that, well, that that's an interesting fact about natural history, but scientifically and even philosophically, I think it's trivial because it doesn't say where those creatures in the misty past came from. They're just posited. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say how they might've given rise to creatures that are substantially different from themselves. They're just there in the present. It just says, well, these guys have eyes and these guys have eyes. So I guess they all descended from somebody who had eyes or some other feature. Well, that's okay. But in my view, it doesn't explain anything. Mm. So common descent, I think, is trivial. Another facet of Darwin's theory is natural selection. And that says, well, you know, an organism that uh, is more fit for an environment will survive better. And again, that's that's an interesting idea. It's good to state that, but again, it's trivial. Who's going to argue that a more fit organisms doesn't have a better chance of surviving? Okay. It's like the definition of being more fit, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But the third aspect of Darwin's theory is the guy is the idea of random change or random mutation in a more modern lingo. And that is the supposition that just random uh, mutations in wherever in uh, the genome of a creature can provide the fodder to build the enormously complex, elegant, sophisticated machinery that science has discovered in the cell, and also to make these uh, marvelous changes in creatures so that, say, a proto-mammal could uh, could give you a kangaroo and a and a bat and a whale and so on. That is where ninety nine percent of the scientific and I think philosophical importance of his theory is, and that's is the least supported notion of the theory of evolution. As a matter of fact, not only is it the least supported. There is strong evidence against that view, that that is sufficient to explain what we have today. And that is exclusively what intelligent design focuses on. Mm-hmm. Intelligent design, some people might you know, say, say this or that or the other thing, but as an idea, 
intelligent design is not the opposite of evolution. Intelligent design is the opposite of Darwinism. It's the opposite. It says that no, random changes can't. You need intelligent direction. You need a mind behind all of this to to get where we are today. Matt, do you want to make some yeah. comments about that before I, I have a question I want to put on the table for you guys? Uh, that's exactly what I wanted to hear was just that concise narrative. So I think the word trivial, I think, yeah, it's it's obvious. I think to a lot of Christians, it's not trivial. They'll come in thinking six-day creation, or if they're a little bit more sophisticated, they'll think that God directly created each species, boom, 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 how many billion species have there been and my my answer to the students is you can certainly believe that as a catholic um the church doesn't force you to believe any scientific theories well established as they may be or any particular scientific datum uh, if it doesn't bear on faith and morals um the i guess just have a little bit further precision to make sure i see where we're coming from so you could take i don't know uh, whales i'm you know whales pop into mind uh, as having once been on land, right? And we can look at the various fields, whether it's biochemistry or whether it's genetics or whether it's continental drift or what have you to look at how we have species that have common ancestors. It seems to me like you're not denying that they have common ancestors, but it's in the, whether this is guided or not, and whether they're, I know the concept of irreducible complexity from your works, I think is clearly laid out. I think I get that. Uh, so does that sound accurate to you? That That's exactly right. Um, in a nutshell, I don't care two hoots about common ancestry. I don't think it's important. Uh, I don't think scientifically, certainly it's not, well, scientifically, I don't think it's important. I don't think it's important philosophically. Mm-hmm. The main question, the reason that people, I think a lot of people, are uh, skeptical of evolution is that it's stated this all happened by chance that it was, Mm -hmm. you know, as Darwin says, it's, it's like the way the wind blows and people look at bats and whales and they say, they smell a rat. They say, nah, that's, that's not how it happens. Mm -hmm. And my, my, you know, beef with Thomists is that you might, encounter folks who are young earthers or something like that. But a lot of folks, even academics, don't go on to explain the difference then. They throw out the baby of elegance and purpose and sophistication in life with the bathwater of quibbling over common descent. Mm -hmm. I think it is a very strong indication of divine purpose and all sorts of stuff like that of what we have discovered science has in the 20th and 21st centuries has just been you know a fount of amazing discoveries about nature not only in biology but in physics of course too even in uh, well in lots of areas right and i think that instead of dissing ID as a number of Thomists do and sort of kind of implying that uh, that ideists are in league with these with these mean creationists or the uh, you know these biblical literalists 
I, I think academics, especially Catholic academics, should point out the differences and mm-hmm. yeah. say that, yeah, well, evolution looks like it's well supported. Darwinism isn't. Not so much. And mm-hmm. Mike, I'm glad. I'm so glad for that. I, I don't know what to say other than people don't get that message. Yeah. You know, I think it, it's, well, that's why we're here, gentlemen. You know, <laughs> Fix it. um, it's not for lack I, of time I, on my part. <laughs> and it's, it's, I think, I mean, to be frank, I think if you coin a book with the title Darwin Devolves, that sure gives the impression of anti-evolution. Hey, but I get how it is. I put on the cover of my book an icon, which is beautiful, which is totally not how I think evolution went down. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful icon of Adam. So I, I get that book titles, yeah. but it's, it's, so it's good to, this is what we do this for, right? We get it. Yeah. So if you guys don't mind, let me, let me put something on the table and, and I think this will help um, evolve the conversation, if <laughs> yeah. you will. Um, so uh, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of conflation that goes on in this debate. Mike just highlighted some. One is that we have to understand that evolution is an accordion term. There's a lot of bait and switch that goes on, right? People will point to the, you know, arguably the fact that evolution occurred without, you know, giving much support around the how, the mechanism. And Mike is challenging the mechanism, right? Primarily. And I think, and I think you're absolutely right, Mike. That that's what carries the most philosophical and theological significance. Because if if the mechanism of uh, of, if Darwin's mechanism is true, yeah, it seems like that would take a lot of wind out of the the theistic sails, if you will. I don't think entirely by any means. I still think there's other great arguments for the existence of God, but it would be it would be undermining of of a, I think a very basic inference that people have just from the elegance of life mm-hmm. to uh, a creator. Hundred percent, I think that's right. And then I think if Darwin's mechanism fails, and we have an inference to intelligent guidance, then I think that evolution occurred is, is really not supremely interesting. Right. I mean, there's still some things you got to work out with Adam and Eve and, and the Bible. Like, don't get me wrong. Like it's not like a free lunch after that, but I think so much of the, the modern tension is gone at that point. I completely agree with you there. So, but then there's also conflations between, I think, hypothesis testing. Right. And, and this is where I think the Thomas make mistake. They'll come in and be like, Oh, UID guys, uh, you don't understand secondary causality and philosophy of nature, but it isn't what Mike's doing. I don't think that's what Mike's doing. I think what Mike is doing is saying, look, let's take the naturalistic metaphysics. Let's take the naturalistic system. And according to its own logic, what does this system predict? What would we expect to see from the system? And what you're, and, and given that this is a system that at bottom does not have teleology, does not have secondary causality, does not have directedness, does not have purposeness. Well, it certainly wouldn't predict anything like irreducibly complex systems. And then Mike's argument is that given that there's tons of these irreducibly complex systems, this counts as significant, if not decisive evidence against the naturalistic paradigm. And then, you know, once that's off the table, what whatever sort of greater metaphysics or philosophy of nature we assume from there have at it, have that debate, right? But like, let's not let's not confuse the debates. Mike, is do you think that's a fair presentation of what your argument actually is? And I'd like Matt to interact with that a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I'm a scientist, you know, and scientists don't talk about philosophy of nature or anything like that. We take Newton's laws and Maxwell's equations and stuff and, and just turn the crank, you know. We take uh, statistics and turn the crank and say, okay, do these account for what I see? And say, yeah, yeah, look at, we fire this cannonball and it goes in this arc, it follows Newton's laws just great. 
just great. Uh, and you don't have to worry about whether God's guiding the cannonball or not or any any such thing. You don't don't think about that. So here comes Darwin and says, well, OK, you know, just random changes. And statistically, one of them is going to help a bit. And, you know, maybe that's how life got built up. OK, that's an idea. It, it had problems even back in 1859. But, hey, uh, when Darwin proposed it, maybe it, maybe it could explain things. OK. But as science progressed, we saw that, in fact, there's a whole lots of levels below what they were able to see in um, the mid-19th century that DNA is packed full of information. There's a genetic code that there is machinery to translate messages from DNA into protein, that proteins have to associate, that they form machines and, and there are signals to take this molecule from this part of the cell over to there and put it there. And if these signals get messed up, the organism dies. And then you can say, okay, well, do the statistics that people... <laughs> people cite and the biology that we now know and the chemistry of the molecules, do they support this, uh, this uh, hypothesis that just statistically random changes filtered by natural selection could build this? And the answer is no. And as I tr showed in Darwin's Black Box, if you go to the scientific literature where scientists would be expected to explain or show how such things arose, you get zero. There is nothing published in detail. You get, you know, occasional genuflections to, oh, look at this magnificent system. Isn't it wonderful what evolution gave us? But you don't get any explanations. And that has continued even since I published in the book in 96, up to the present day, nobody explains. And what's more, in the meantime, we've learned what random processes and natural selection do, in fact, do. And that's the topic of Darwin Devolves. And that is that random mutations, you know, are much, much more likely to break something than they are to construct something new. And the interesting thing that has come to the light in just the past 20 years <clears throat> due to advances in DNA sequencing technology, where we can track down the nature of the mutation that's being selected, is that oftentimes breaking genes helps. And so natural selection selects the loss of genetic information very frequently. In just the last two days, uh, news stories have come across. Uh, one yesterday was about uh, the sequencing of the genome of the woolly mammoth. People got, you know, uh, got uh, woolly mammoth carcasses that had been frozen <clears throat> and crazy these days. They can sequence the whole genome from, from this, you know, remains. And they saw that difference between a woolly mammoth and an elephant, uh, the most prominent difference is that there are a hundred different genes. 
And the difference is, is that they're all broken in the woolly mammoth. Genes involved in fat metabolism, in hair length. If you break a gene that tells the cell to stop making hair of a, after a certain length, then it might continue. And that'll help in cold environments. So the point is that the, it, it seems that Darwin's mechanism does explain a transition from an elephant-like creature to a woolly mammoth-like creature, <laughs> but it does it mostly by devolution, not by evolution. And that's interesting. That means that it can adapt to the circumstance, but it does not explain how those genes got there in the first place. Blowing up a bridge is not the opposite of breaking or of building a bridge. And it doesn't tell you anything about how to build a bridge by blowing one up. Just today, another experiment was reported saying that, oh, scientists have shown how the bacterium E. coli could develop a symbiotic relationship uh, with uh, this uh, small insect. And they took E. coli and they grew it in the lab and they showed that eventually they could get it. It, it. it didn't work after a while, but eventually the E. coli adapted and the bug adapted. And now the E. coli is symbiotic. And it turns out that it, it uh, developed the symbiosis by breaking genes that you know, allowed it to express its own metabolic pathways. And now it's relying on the bugs metabolic pathways. So if, if you look for it, as I've tried to, to do uh, in the past uh, dozen years or so anyway, you'll see that almost all of the examples that Darwinists point to, why well, look at these dogs over here, how much they've changed and, and you know, uh, woolly mammoths and polar bears and stuff. They're all examples of devolution. And again, that's, that's neat. That's interesting, and it helps explain how life fills various niches. But it so says a snake, nothing. A snake is a devolved lizard that lost its leg. <laughs> in a sense, yeah, in a sense. So yeah, we it works by me. I hate snakes. Great, great, great. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna. I'm not here to debate your biochemistry, Mike. I'm just gonna jump in because you were going on for a while there. Uh, yeah, sure. But uh, you know, I, I think I. Where I sit on that is, I think that's all beautiful. I, I just am not all that interested as a theologian in that area, I guess, because I think may, this is where I think Thomists are coming from is, yeah, I know you're familiar. You've been doing this a lot longer than I have. So there's nothing new I'm going to say. So I, I'm not sure the fruitfulness of this or not. But Well, it'll be um, new to, to people listening always. So it's. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I think for me, I kind of look at the complex structures and I think, oh, that's wonderful research. And I yawn because I've already got the necessary being God through metaphysics. And so um i think gosh you know hemoglobin i remember looking at the molecule of hemoglobin uh, in chemistry and how amazing this thing is and i, I know you go into blood clotting right the immune system and I, it gives me another reason to contemplate god for sure and again you're familiar with every possible objection if i wanted to be raising objections um i guess for me l let me go this direction because i think this might be fruitful 
it has to do with thinking about the relationship of divine and creaturely causality. And it, it looks like this, um, an irreducibly complex structure. How, is the divine causality any different there? It, is the divine doing something extra different than the divine was doing in the steps that were prior to that? Any commentary on that? Real quick, that? before you answer that, Mike, uh, maybe just re-explain what you mean by an irreducibly complex system, because we've brought that term up a number of times in this conversation so far, but we haven't um, expanded on it yet. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, roughly, an irreducibly complex system is, is some machine or some system that has a number of different components, and they're all required for it to function. And the example I use in Darwin's Black Box is a, is a mechanical mousetrap, has a spring and a wooden base and a hammer and stuff. And if you take any one of those parts away, the system doesn't work anymore. Uh, and the relevance is that uh, Darwin always insisted that you had to evolve things very gradually, step by tiny step over long periods of time. And each step improving or, or at least not hurting uh, the organism. And he's, uh, and he said, if you can't do that, then his theory is out the window. Well, with irreducibly complex systems, that's real hard to see how you could do that because the function doesn't appear until all of the parts are, are there and arranged. So, and, and science has discovered tons of these things in the cell at the, at the foundation of life. Yeah. All right. So now, now the Matt's question about the, okay. Yep. If you remember it. Well, again, I'm, I'm not a generalist. I'm a biochemist. So I don't think about God's causality in anything. Uh, well, at least on the job. Uh, what I do think, however, is that the, uh, that the Darwin's explanation that you can just, you know, have mutations occur without regard to how they would benefit a species randomly, and then selection comes along and grabs onto them, would build these things. I see that's totally inadequate. Yeah. Okay, that's totally inadequate. No matter what your philosophy of nature, that doesn't work. What's more, uh, as of course, you probably know, the question is, how do we recognize design? Is is the claim of design, does that reduce to just saying, I don't know how this could have happened, so God must have done it? And, and the answer is, is no. There's a Scottish philosopher named Thomas Reed in the uh, 18th century who uh, announced something he called the design principle. And he said, in a nutshell, that we can't read minds. So the only way we recognize intelligent activity is by what is done or by what somebody does. So somebody smarter can do more impressive things than somebody who isn't as smart. And what's more, if you come across something and you see that the parts have been arranged for a purpose, you deduce from the structure of that system that it has been purposely made. If you look at a dictionary has a, as the uh, definition for design is the purposeful arrangement of parts. And if you think about a mousetrap, anybody recognizes the mousetrap is designed because you see all, all the parts are arranged for a purpose. So the positive argument for purposeful design is that we see parts arranged for a purpose everywhere in 
life and most especially at the very foundation of life the foundation that darwin would thought would be just a piece of of jelly turns out to be phenomenally purposeful and, and complex and based on logic and reasoning the kind that thomas reed talked about we can firmly conclude that that is purposely designed how it was done that's a separate question when it was done that was a separate question who did it? That's a separate question. But we immediately see when we look at something like a machine, and there's lots of machines in cell, we can firmly conclude that it was purposely made. That was Michael Behe and Matthew Ramage talking intelligent design and gearing up for more to come in parts two and three ahead of us. They were hosted by Pat Flynn whom we thank for permission to republish this audio from his Philosophy for the People podcast. Stay tuned for more to come. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.